Like, the word I want to use to describe him is, like, a boob. I don't know why I've heard that being, like, he's just, like, a whatever guy. Um, is that a bad tip? I don't know where that comes from. I mean, from. yeah, that sounds pretty disrespectful to boobs. Maybe so. I feel like people have said goob, and I've also heard people say, but let's cut this out. Welcome to Feeling It, a podcast where we discuss TV, movies, pop culture, and whether or not we're feeling it. If this is your first time joining us. Welcome to the show. Hear something neat? It's showtime! Hold your ears, folks. Here we go! See what you can do now. Take your position. All right, ladies, buckle up. Let's do this. Hold on to your butts. Seriously? Listen to me very, very carefully. Hey, it's me again. Eat him up. Enjoy. All right, hey everybody, glad to have you with us on this episode of the Feeling It podcast. Um, on this podcast, for the first time, listeners, we talk about things, whether it's pop culture, movies, TV, tech, whatever it is, we can't get out of our heads, um, and usually spend some time on a deep dive on one subject throughout the episode. Today, we're going to be taking that deep dive on Stranger Things 2, as they're calling it, the second season of the Duffer Brothers show on Netflix. But before we get into all that, let's introduce ourselves, tell us who you are, what you do, and what VHS tape you wore out as a kid in honor of... Stranger Things season one being sold on VHS. <laughs> I didn't know that it was sold on VHS. Um, I'm Santa Amstutz. I'm a social media manager in Nashville, Tennessee. And I remember playing over over and over this um, Bob Fosse choreography VHS that I somehow had. And specifically the number Big Spender. Hey, Big Spender was a, a musical number that I watched over and over. Um I was I was entranced. That's so perfect. Yeah. That feels like the kind of thing that would be like only on YouTube now. And I love that all of those things used to be in cardboard VHSs. Like, right. Uh, all right. Well, I'm Lawson Soward. I'm an art director from Nashville, Tennessee. And the VHS tape that I completely wore out um, was Star Wars Return of the Jedi, um, which a lot of Star Wars purists back when the first uh, trilogy came out said it was like, the worst one by a mile, but I watched it when I was a kid and it had the fuzzy Ewoks and it had this forest scene and it was my favorite. So that one was the one whenever I put it in, it always got the tracking, like trying to find it because it was just on its last leg. All right. Well, um, let's talk about what we've been feeling this week. Sandra, kick us off. Okay. So typically, um, we're pretty positive on this podcast, especially in this section. Like what we're feeling is something that like we're trying to recommend to people. Like we're really happy and excited about it. Um, I'm going to take a little different path this week. Um, I saw a free screening as part of a, a marketing promotion um, for the new movie, The Disaster Artist. They held um, a free screening of The Room here in Nashville. Um at one of the theaters in town. And for anyone who doesn't know, The Room is a movie made in 2003 by Tommy Wiseau. Um, and it's kind of regarded as the worst movie of all time. It's doesn't make any sense. The set design is awful. The acting is awful. The writing is awful. Um, it, the shots go in and out of focus throughout the entire film. It's horrible. Plain and simple. Um, but it's gained a cult following for how bad it is, and it is very funny and entertaining for those reasons. Um, so, you know, lots of people have 
watched this movie over and over again throughout the years. It's known for having very public screenings where people shout certain things at the screen or throw spoons at the screen, um, sort of like Rocky Horror Picture Show. And um, I saw The Room years ago um, with a group of friends in college, um, but I've never been to a public screening before, and that's always something that sounded kind of fun. I love the idea of a group of people coming together and all, like, knowing what to shout at the screen at the same time. That, that kind of communal activity sounded like something I would be really excited to be a part of. So when I had these free passes to go to a screening of The Room, I was really excited. I took a friend who had never seen The Room, and um, she and I quickly learned that this was going to be one of the worst movie-going experiences ever. Um, (laughs) Not because of the movie The Room, which was fun to watch, and I would recommend people finding a copy of it and watching it with a group of friends at home. Um, But we quickly learned that, and and I can't say that this is the case for every screening, but I would imagine it could be, um... Screenings of the room are a place for the worst, most obnoxious men to, like, be their true selves. Oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) So because you're supposed to yell at the screen as an audience um, all these different sayings and phrases, um, it gives everyone in the audience full reign to be as loud as they want. Now, part of that is fun because um, it was fun to be able to lean over to my seatmate and just talk about what's happening on the screen. Because the, the room is the type of movie you want to talk uh, through, you know. Um, you want to discuss what's happening. So that part was fun. The idea that it was casual. This isn't a sacred film event like, you know, normally when you go to the movie theater. Um... What was not fun, though, was there were several men in the audience who take it as their, like, one true shot to, like, be a comedian. They would just yell at the screen constantly. They would try to make jokes that weren't funny. Um, Mm. And it was so maddening. Um. Uh, you know, someone yelled out a Kevin Spacey joke that was really inappropriate. And mm. there was a lot of jokes that I thought that felt very misogynistic. And it was just really, really gross. It didn't help that my nemesis was also at this screening. And I don't know if it counts as a nemesis if he doesn't know who I am. But <laughs> nevertheless, he's I consider him my nemesis. He's one of the most hated people in Nashville for me. And he was mm. at this screening and he was a very vocal presence at this screening. Um, so overall, it was just awful. So I I'm telling about this because um, if anyone else, you know, with the disaster artists coming out, Um, I think there's going to be a lot of screenings of the room popping up so that people can see the movie right before they go see the disaster artist. I'm telling you this so that you will know full well what you might be getting yourself into. Um, I personally, after this experience, would recommend trying to find a copy of the room and watching it with a group of friends. I think that would be just as fun. Um, You get to talk through it. You get to... 
exclaim at how ridiculous and nonsensical the movie is um, without having to deal with the obnoxiousness of a large public crowd. Um, But if you are into that sort of thing and you can tune out obnoxious men easily, then go for it. Um, I will say one big positive about my experience was that at the very end of the movie, they had a segment um, where they showed some footage from the disaster artists, um, specifically footage of them making the film, you know, not, not, not the footage of like the characters in the disaster artists, but the recreation of the room. Uh, and they have done a bang up job. They would do it like a side by side comparison of the, the, the movie, the room, and then scenes from the, the disaster artists. They've done an incredible job of getting every single detail perfect. Every single strange costume piece, set design, act, the dialogue, the weird accent, um, it is really impressive. And I'm very, very excited for The Disaster Artist. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm very excited for that movie, too, which is... Uh... I don't know, weird because I have not seen The Room. Like, I never have seen the source material. We'll but fix not- that before The Disaster Artist comes out. Yeah, that sounds great. And it's great to know how not to fix that before it comes out. Right. All right, well, I'm sorry that was such a, a crappy experience, but thank you for <laughs> thank you for that. No problem. Uh, uh, so I think we're going to be all movies all day on this episode. Um, my pick for the week is the film Loving Vincent. Um so Loving Vincent is uh, kind of like, it's a biographical animated drama about the life of the painter Vincent Van Gogh. Um, and it was written and developed, written and developed by Dorota uh, Kobiela and Hugh Welshman. Um, I'm not familiar with any of their work beyond this. Um, but it was funded by the Polish Film Institute and partially through a Kickstarter campaign. Um, there were also a ton of other people that touched this. Whenever the credits started, it was like every two every two to ten seconds there was another production company rolling up, and I was just like, oh, a lot of people really pitched in to make this happen. Um, but one of the things that made it uh, so unique and made it to where so many people had to touch it was that this film about Vincent Van Gogh contains 65,000 frames, each of which is an actual oil painting on canvas painted in the style of Vincent van Gogh. Um, It was created by a team of 115 painters, and it is unlike anything I've ever seen on screen. It has some great voice talent behind it. It basically rolls like an animated movie, but instead of like 2D cells or 3D animation, it's uh, oil painting. Um, It has Douglas Booth, uh, from Jupiter Ascending, who plays Armand Rulin. Um, you find out that the Rulins are a family that Vincent Van Gogh uh, was very close to in his time in uh, France. Uh, it has Chris O'Dowd from Bridesmaids, IT Crowd, and everything else, playing uh, the postman Rulin, and uh, Jerome Flynn from Game of Thrones, playing Dr. Gachet, who is like his main physician whenever he was there um, in Paris. So it's got a great cast. Um, and it draws from people who are painted throughout the works of um, Vincent van Gogh's career. So you can see um, every one of these characters 
walk into a space and sit down in a way that recreates an exact Vincent van Gogh painting and then they continue to talk. It just kind of, it really feels like it, it brings every painting that all his most iconic paintings to life and uses them as settings and every camera angle um, in a setting that he painted is uh, the camera is angled in the exact same angle as the the painting's perspective. Um, it was so cool. It kind of made me think back on how thankful I am to have seen the number of Van Gogh paintings that I've seen because every time I recognize something, I was like, oh, crap, that's awesome. Um, but I also learned so, so much from this movie. Um, it struck me as like uh, uh, Douglas John Booth, who is... Um, I think is probably a better actor than this movie um, shows him to be. Uh, hit the script that kind of moved along the plot from place to place, from painting to painting, from person to person, um, felt kind of thin um, as something that's trying to get you from vignette to vignette to teach you more about Vincent Van Gogh. Um, so I, uh, I loved it. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, but kind of like as it moved along, I was like, oh, this could be, they spent so much time trying to make sure that they were honoring the artist, um, getting in things as accurately as they could, that uh, they didn't take a lot of uh, dramatic license to make the plot like mm. really peppy or like really right. keep moving. Um, which on the one hand, I can appreciate. I think this is, the perfect film to show in an art appreciation class. I think it's the perfect film. It could uh, play in a museum. Um, I really enjoyed seeing it at our local art house theater. Um, and I was glad that I saw it on a big screen so that I could see all the detail of the oil painting. And um, honestly, because it's the kind of thing that's like very, like if it's a rainy day and you have, you know, uh, a pot of tea on, like you can watch it and you just be totally chill. But I'm glad that I was in a space where it was just darkened and this was all I had to pay attention to because it was a lot of really beautiful, intricate stuff. Um, the degree to which every single frame moves in this blew my mind because every knowing everything was a different uh, uh, paintbrush stroke, just like really was really, really oppressive and affecting. Um, and uh, made me a little motion sick at one point um, mm. because it's like the impressionistic painting, the the, uh, the strokes are very wide. And so it's kind of, you know, you can see it when it moves. Yeah. Um, but I, the voice acting in this is amazing. Um, I was particularly a fan of Jerome Flynn. Um, the ending of this movie really brings all the pieces together in a way that's uh, beautiful and uh, like, is the most compelling of the whole film. But the thing I'm most thankful for out of this is being able to see something this beautiful. Every one of these, you know, 65,000 frames could be a painting I would be so happy to hang on the wall. And the fact that I get to see all of them in sequence, it's still kind of humbling to think about. Um, and beyond that, I learned so much about Vincent Van Gogh in this process, um, so much about his family relationships, so much about... Um, the length and quality of his career, the, uh, his, you know, family background, so much that goes into who he is, why he became the father of modern art, um, how people were receiving him at the time that I just didn't know before. 
Um, I, you know, learned some of it from art history class, but it was never this in depth and didn't stick with me in this way. So if this movie is showing near you, I highly recommend it. Um, it is a beautiful movie. You will be very glad you saw it. Go in knowing that it's going to be a slow film and you can just appreciate it, uh, for what it is on its face. It's, a uh, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous piece of art, and I was really feeling it this week. I am so excited to see this movie, Lawson. Um, I haven't made time for it yet, but I, I will definitely make sure to go see it before it leaves the bell court because, um, yeah, the trailer alone is just so magnetic. It, I Like you said, it's, it's something I've never seen before, um, and that alone will get me in the theater. Yeah, it's beautiful. I want to be, like very positive and glowing because there is so much to glow about um the the plot itself is a little bit more like i don't know like an episode of uh svu or like one of those uh places a historical dramatization where you might go and instead of someone just like having a placard that says in these days they turned butter there's like someone there saying i churn the butter all day i'm in this situation so mm. it's like yeah it's kind of it feels very historical it feels feels very um biographical um uh but the visuals and what i learned were so great that like i wasn't even mad i just i i think i went in expecting a little bit more of uh of a dramatic film than what it ended up being but the film that it was was still great cool all right well with that let's uh jump into our main topic stranger things season two of start off because Stranger Things is such a interesting case of uh, something that came out on Netflix to very little fanfare and then completely exploded. So, uh, Xander, I wanted to talk through, like, what was your experience like with the initial Stranger Things? Like, when did you catch on to it? When did you watch it? How was, how did that all go down? And did you, we talked a little bit about um, the first season on the podcast, but... How, how did your original viewing of this impact your viewing of it the second season? Well, so last year, um, like you said, it, it kind of came onto Netflix. Nobody really, you know, the only big star in this show is Winona Ryder. And then right. David, David Harbour is kind of like a far second as far as star power goes. Um, and so, yeah, like you said, no fanfare. Um but because we're in a pop culture sphere, um, of course, we heard about it picking up steam and people really liking it. So um, I was hesitant to watch Stranger Things because I avoid all things horror. And it was being really pitched as very much a horror show. Um, and a group of friends came over to the house and we all decided to watch the first episode. And... Um, I think that that was such a perfect way for me to get started because if I've learned one thing about 
watching Stranger Things now for two seasons is that the show is best experienced when you're watching it with other people. Um, mm. And because I think because I watched that show with other people, that first episode, um, that got me much more excited for the show. Um, I think if I had watched it by myself, I would have been a little too scared to continue on with the season because that first episode is incredibly scary. Um, yeah. And it's, I would say it's one of the scariest of either season. Um, and, but we had a blast with it and, um, I, you know, I kept watching the show with friends or roommates. Um, I ended up finishing season one by myself, which I wish I could have watched it with other people, but, um, I fell in love with that show. I couldn't stop watching it. Um, we had sort of a Stranger Things Halloween party that year. Uh, we really, as a group, you know, fell in love with the story, the aesthetic, the characters. Um, so this year I was anxiously waiting season two. Um, I thought the trailers were really fun. Um, I thought it was cool that it had a Super Bowl trailer. Um, yeah. And yeah, so I was ready for the season to start and, um, we made a point to watch uh, the first few episodes with my roommate and my roommate's family who was in town visiting, um, which really like set it up for like the ideal environment of watching it with a group of people. Yeah, I agree. This is such a fun show to watch with people. I ended up watching the second season solo. Um, I watched a little bit of it with my wife, and then um, she just, um, for whatever reason, like didn't pick up on it this year or like didn't feel the urgency to finish it because i just like wanted to get through like i was really really ready for every next episode um and so i finished watching the rest of it by myself and it was still like i'm a huge fan of this season which we'll get into more later um but so it didn't negatively it was still a great experience but i really i really enjoy the the group watching of this movie i just it's so fun the movie itself is such about like character development and a friend group and all this stuff, like actually watching it in a friend group just feels right. Um, so yeah, uh, first season, we were both big fans. Um, this season had, like you said, huge Super Bowl trailers, tons of press coming up to it. Um, there was a big Spotify takeover whenever it came out. Um, they really took out all the stops. Also, they have, for the past year paraded these kids in front of every award show and press junket they can get them their hands on. Like, these kids have had so much press just as children. Um, I feel like I see yes. them everywhere. Agreed. And part of me wants to be like, good, they are a good and beautiful thing in the world, and I'm so glad that they are taking up more space in it. And another part of it is like, give these kids a break. They yeah. need it. Like, do not burn them out. Like, right. protect them at all costs. <laughs> But yeah, this new season, uh, I I really liked it. I wanted to see what your impressions of it were um, on it. I guess we don't have to compare it to season one, but it's kind of hard to do it without that. But what did you think of this season overall? Overall, I loved it. Um, I feel like today is going to be hard for me to talk about Stranger Things because... Um, my mind kind of goes away from me in these instances because Stranger Things, I feel like, really turns me into a little kid again. Um, oh. I, I, when I'm watching it, 
I am more um, energized. I yell at the screen in a way that I normally don't when I watch <laughs> TV or movies. Um, yeah. I, um, I love this story and these characters so much that it's hard for me to think very critically about them. Um, mm. I just kind of soak it all in again, like a kid would with their favorite movie. This, this, they've done such a good job. Um, I would say casting is the biggest thing that this show has going for it. Mm -hmm. Um, in filling it with actors and characters that, um, I want to watch all the time and that I like feel such, such a pure love for, um, Without and they all feel like individual distinct characters. Um, so that, that being said, I loved this season. I had a great time with this show because I feel like I will always have a great time with this show. Um, there are things that I recognize that are were not done in a way that I would have chosen um, or that I feel like were a little misguided. But overall, it didn't impact the fact that I had a blast watching this show. Absolutely. That, I never, you, you put that into words so well. <laughs> like, um, we, I mean, obviously for our podcast, we wanted to wait a little bit longer to give everyone a chance to time to watch the show. But that also meant that after it was finished, I was able to, uh, like, read some reviews and listen to some people talk about the show, kind of see what was being said about it. And most of the things that people um, put down about it were like, oh, when I was watching that, that didn't bother me. But I still, like, heard their argument and understood where they were coming from. But because I was a kid, and that's, I think, part of what it is to be a kid and watch a movie is there can be tons of plot holes or, like, unnecessary rabbit trails you go down. And as a kid, you're like, well, that's how it's supposed to be because that's how it is. And a grown-up made it, so that's how it should be. Um and that's kind of how I felt with this movie. There were, um, I keep saying movie. They want me to keep saying movie, so that um, is going to keep Which happening. But I'm that, going to fight against. This is not a movie. It is a it is TV not. show. And I hate when TV show creators um, dismiss the fact that they make TV shows and they don't make movies. Get over it. You're making a TV show. Right. TV shows are a just as good of an art form. Yeah. So enough with your pretension. Yeah. Um, but... Apologies, because that's going to slip in this episode a lot. Um, but, uh, yeah, this season I thought was very, very well made. And there were plenty of things that, like, structurally I could understand as um, being criticisms or plot holes or, you know. I mean, there are things we'll go into about the season that was, like, I really only bad, have but one overall. criticism. I, you know, like. Oh, I've, really? Okay. I've heard criticism of this show, of this season, um, that I can understand but don't agree with, but I have pretty much one, and that is the introduction of uh, a new character. <laughs> so... Yes. Um, I... There are three new characters that are um, big Four. introductions. Oh, what's the fourth? Or, sorry, what's the fourth? You don't know the three I'm thinking of. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> do you want to um, jump into that in spoilers, or well, do you want to talk about them now? here's what I would say we should do, is I think we can talk about broad things like who these new characters are um in the main topic but let's not talk about any spoilers in the plot of the show um okay. does that make sense like yeah totally we can talk about these so, additional new characters i think we meet them all in the first episode i think that's true so we've got um 
Billy and Max, and they are... Step-siblings. Step-siblings, yes, that are introduced, that moved from California, and Billy is kind of this uh, 80s uh, badass character. When you first see him, you kind of feel this vibe of danger, but you don't know which way it's going to go, and that plays out throughout the season. Um, Max is his younger sister, um, who uh, is like skateboarder and a gamer and uh like very much whenever she first meets the our our crew um is not about their thing (laughs) she's like not impressed um and then there's bob who uh comes in and you're introduced to him as winona Ryder's character's um boyfriend and that they are in a relationship and he is just kind of like dorky sweetie in the best i was so into bob as a character throughout this show um and he's just like a total he's a goober that's what i wanted to say he's a goober um and i loved him as a character throughout this show so those were the three i was thinking of sandra what's the well, fourth that you were thinking i'm actually of? now thinking of five because i forgot about bob um oh but uh I well, forgot about two people. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of them is more minor. Um, so there's Dr. Owens, the new head of the lab. Um, oh, right. That Paul Reiser plays. Yes. Um, so he's he's who I was thinking of. And then, he does a great job. Um, in sort of a smaller role, there's Brett Gelman playing an investigative reporter. That's right. Well, he was in the first season, though. I don't think he was. Oh, I thought he was. No, I'm pretty sure he wasn't. Okay, I believe you. Yeah. It's been um, since last year when I watched the first season. Yeah, because he's hired um, to, like, investigate, like, what happened um, in the events of season one. Um, he just is a character that makes so much sense in this universe that I imagined seeing him in the first scene of last season whenever, like, uh, David Harbour first walks into the uh, police station. Oh. He's, like, dealing with some crackpot who is, like, kind of onto it. Um and I thought it was that guy. No, nope, that was I, the first episode of this season. Yeah, I imagined all of it. Yeah. That's, okay. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> and then there are some other smaller new characters, you know, that uh, appear every once in a while. We get to see more of the boys' families, which I really appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we get to meet some, like, strange new characters in a different town. Um, so... There was just a lot more people in the show, um, which I don't think overall as a decision to add a bunch of new characters, um, I, I wouldn't say I loved. Like, I, the story is about these people that we met in season one, and uh, I, I didn't need character arcs from other people um, muddying up my precious Stranger Things kids storylines. <laughs> um, but I also don't think it was bad. Uh, I think it was just a little extra. Um, but the one addition that we talked about, the character of Billy, um, I would say that this isn't a spoiler to say that it's it's pretty clear on that he's just kind of a jerk overall, like a yeah. a big old jerk, and um, in possibly a very violent way. Um, and I would just say that that character didn't really do much for the story in any way. I don't know that I care enough about Max yet to really care about her being in danger with her stepbrother. Um, I don't think he was 
embedded enough in the story to make sense to be a threat to any of the other characters that we care about. Um, we just had random scenes where he would show up and be an asshole to someone, and then it wouldn't really amount to much. Um, and it just felt unnecessary, and um, I, I, I had nothing... I didn't enjoy it at all. Um, I will say that I do love the actor that played that character. I've seen him in other things. I actually think that his performance of this character was fun and interesting. Um, he was really going for it, which I appreciated. <laughs> but um, the writing and the way that, that character was weaved into the story didn't do anything for me. Yeah, he didn't work for me at all. And you don't like... He just shows up and is an asshole all over everything, and you don't know why. Like, they give you no even hint into his motivation until, like, close to the end of the series. Yeah. Like, and it's not like and even some then, big spoiler to say they do that, but even then it's not like, It doesn't oh, okay. really make up for anything, you know? Right, like, he's just a mustache, uh, a wispy mustache twirling uh, villain the whole time, and... There are already enough villains. Like, there's otherworldly villains in this show. I didn't I didn't need his role for this. Yeah. I loved Max. I loved Bob. I love Paul Reiner's new character. Um, I love... I mean, everybody who they introduced, I really enjoyed what they brought. But I hear what you're saying in the... Um, the part of what was so charming about the first episode... The first season, series season of this was um, the how local it was that it was all contained in Hawkins, Indiana and, and the upside down, the alternate dimension in Hawkins, Indiana. Um, and that really gave it all a uh, sense of place and you got to know and love these people. And in this episode it, or this um, season, it felt as though I couldn't tell if this was like, we need to expand it this much so that the rest of the story we tell has this much extra room. Or if this was the start of a trend to say like, we're broadening this thing out more every season until this thing is a universe. And that's something I'm really not interested in. Um, I'm, I feel the opposite. I, um, we'll get in spoilers to like the specifics of this, but the broadening that they did that was outside of Hawkins, um, I am so gung ho for. Um, and I guess we could talk about why later, but I, I think that this, if they do it right, then I am really excited for it. Yeah, I wasn't um, particularly against the like what they did this season. I just really hope that it isn't a trend that they continue expanding and expanding. I hope that they're like, we needed to add this, and this is as much as we're adding. Um, but we can talk about that more in spoilers. Um, yeah, I love that you got to meet Barb's family. I love that you got to meet Lucas's family. Um they do a, family. Yeah, they do a lot in this um, as far as, like, in the first season, um, Mike had, like, probably the biggest role out of the whole season um, and of all the, like, the group of guys. And this season, he had the smallest role. He was very much in the background. He didn't have... Um, he still had an emotional arc, but he was, like, kind of in the back. And then Will, who in the last season... Um, was, you know, out of the season for most of it by necessity of the plot, um, was really brought front, front and center in this and, like, had to carry it and develop and um, show a lot of range and a bunch of, like, really crazy things that if he didn't 
deliver it, it would have made the whole show seem cheesy, and he nailed it. Like, I just think it's really cool that within this um, group of kids, they are uh, taking turns season by season and giving different people uh, a chance to have uh, a bigger ratio of screen time. And I'm just amazed at how amazing all of these kids are at as actors. Like, I could see them feeling like, you know, we cast Will, and he just kind of, he looks so much like Winona Ryder, he, but he's not that good of an actor, but he's not really in in this very much, so we'll cast him. Like, they got, they have a deep bench of people here, and they all look the part, feel the part. Um, I'm just, like you said, I think their casting is, is one of their strongest points for this whole series. Yeah, watching this season, Will blew me away. The, the actor that played Will blew me away. Um, yeah. I would be watching a scene and I would just look over to my friend and just say, this kid is so good. Like, we we had no idea from season one what an amazing actor this kid is. Um, and, and that's true for all of the actors. Um, I read an article with the Duffer Brothers and they said, you know, they cast a lot of these kids and it wasn't until they got them on camera on set they really found out how good they were, especially last year with Millie Bobby Brown, that mm-hmm. they cast her. And then really once they started filming, um, we're like, whoa, she can do way more than we thought, you know. And the same thing happened with Will this season, that um, this kid is just a, an, a major talent. Um, there is a certain scene towards the end um, where Will's family um, gets, like, a lot of emotional moments. And uh, in that scene, I was blown away by just how good of an actor the 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 guy who plays Jonathan is. Of course, mm-hmm. how good Winona Ryder is. Everyone on this show, David Harbour is just amazing. Um, they really have assembled, like, an all-star team. Um, and I think that is, like, the show's biggest strength. Um, the, what was I going to say? I did want to say before we get to spoilers, because I'm assuming if people are listening, they've at least watched the first episode, um, that the first episode opens with one of the coolest opening sequences I've ever seen in a TV show. Um, I loved it. I had such a blast in that opening sequence. I think it was genius to set up season two with an entire opening sequence full of characters we have n- we have never met. Um, it reminds me a lot of, like, the beginning of some of the later Harry Potter books. How the first chapter would often be um, with people, characters we didn't know very well, often villains. Um, and it, you know, wouldn't have Harry, Ron, or Hermione in the first chapter. It would be this scene taking place somewhere, and and you're not really sure what's going on. And then it would jump you into the story, and then that scene would be very crucial later on. Um, it it does that same thing, and I was just a fun, exciting way to get started. Yeah, it was not what I expected at all, and it really to me it was like, oh, these guys have not rested on anything. Yeah. Like, they are pushing the boundaries of what the show is. And I think they did a great job with it. That's another thing, like, the 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 scenes they were tasked to film in the first se- season um, do not line up with all the scenes that they're tasked to film in this one, and they still did a great job of them. Like, I was 
still super, super compelled. What do you mean by that? Uh, just like that first season, that first scene was like an action scene, a car chase scene, like a big, you know, big city, uh, navigate, like running away from the cops. And it just felt a lot more, um, I don't know, opening scene of Dark Knight than E.T. And I was like, this is a very different thing you're doing and you're still doing it super well. All right. Um, but yeah, overall, uh, I mean, I feel like you either watch the first season and you loved it and you can't wait to watch the second season or you're like, I want to be like, what do we say? Do we recommend or do we not? But like, I, I really do recommend it. I don't know that um, there's anybody out there who doesn't know that they're in, hot or cold on this yet. <laughs> you know, I have spoken to some people who haven't seen it yet. Okay. Um, and haven't seen season one yet. Um, and it's either for one or two reasons. One, they're worried about it being too scary. To that, I would say, if I can handle it, you can. Um, Truth. Because I don't, I really don't love scary movies, and this is a show that I love. So that's my, that would be what I would say to them. There's other people that I've heard that have kind of avoided it because of how hyped up and zeitgeisty it is. You know, when something's mm. universally beloved, I I completely understand that feeling of like wanting to stay away from it, um, not wanting to get sucked into this like everyone talking about the same thing. Um, mm. But to that, I would say some there are some things that are universally beloved because they are just that good. Um, a lot of classic Disney movies are this way. Um, a lot of you know, fairy tales are this way. Things that are, I think, going to be timeless. And I think this is one of them. And I know that that's a big statement to make. But I do think that the reason this is so universally beloved, and especially season one, I think it's too soon to tell about season two, but especially season one, is that it's so good and well done that um, everyone should be watching it. And you're going to fall in love with it. And so I would really recommend people watch it, even if they're resistant, because it's what, you know, every single person they know is talking about. Yeah, I could see someone feeling like this is really playing on the uh, n- the trend of nostalgia um, culture right now. And I, I see that criticism. I see where that's coming from. But... I to me I I don't want that to keep anybody from watching this show because the thing that they do by setting this in the 80s and having a bunch of kids there um is not say I mean there are scenes where they're like oh cool an Atari and like that is there but more of what's going on here is the uh Duffer brothers have a really amazing sense of what it feels like to be a kid and um kind of the the bike riding and uh walkie talkies and all that like that's different now people have um people that age are texting now and um you know maybe they're getting ubers places i don't know <laughs> like, obviously i'm not in that age demo but i know that it's different but there is something really universal like you said about the way that they're portraying um childhood in this and how it feels to be a kid and um, even though the setting does a lot for it, and I think it's a cool, fun thing, really all it does to me is amplify the universality of a childhood experience. 
um, and how big, you know, bigger than life things um, feel when you're a kid. Both you are kind of quicker to accept them and like less afraid, it, it, like less of, oh, I can't deal with this because this goes against everything I understand because it, you know, the first season, second season, they use D&D to understand everything. It doesn't feel like, even though it kind of like, this is crazy. They're all kind of taking it in stride more than the adults do. Um, and there's something very unique to childhood in that. And the, the feeling, the emotion that you have there, the sense of, um, magic and wonder, uh, just comes through so well in the show. And I agree. I think it's one of those things that's popular because it's good. Because when it first came out, it didn't have a big marketing machine behind it. Enough people just liked it to where it became huge. So Yeah, one of my favorite critics, Andy Greenwald, he continually says that Stranger Things ultimately is a show about a group of kids learning that there is evil in the world. And when you come back to that, that is what makes this show so good and universal is because... We have all been children before, and we all had to realize that, that there is evil in this world, and you get to decide, like, what you're going to do about that. So I would heartily recommend this. You get a great—it um, ends, it resolves similarly to season one, which is you get a real sense of resolution. You get a real sense of, I watched a complete piece here. It's not all um, franchise bait or whatever. It's a great and complete work, and— I think it's a ton of fun. Yeah, me too. Awesome. You want to jump into spoilers? Absolutely. Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? Are you paying attention? It's your last chance to walk away. Let me tell you what's going to happen. No. Cracking gas. Spoilers! Remember, you wanted this. Okay. So the first thing I wanted to say was how much I loved the scene whenever um, Lucas was talking to Max, telling her the story of, like, basically verbally recapping season one of Stranger Things to her so that Max could be the audience surrogate for all the critique of Stranger Things season one. <laughs> like, just being like, I don't know, it's a little derivative and hard to believe, but, like, it's pretty fun, I guess. Huh. It just, it was, it felt like such an intentional, like, the scriptwriters just put that in, like, we heard what you said, internet comments, and uh, we're taking it in stride. Oh, I didn't pick up on that. Huh. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about... Episode 7. Yes. Okay. A lot of different opinions on Episode 7 out there. I loved Episode 7. One, okay, me too. I loved the world that it was bringing us into, um, but I thought it was so smart to give us a break from Demogorgons and Upside Downs and Hawkins. I feel like at, by Episode 6, I was a little overwhelmed by how bleak and terrifying that thought of this under upside down taking over was and and all the demogorgons and all it was just a lot to handle and then yeah. we got this one episode break where we didn't have to deal with that at all we just got to deal with 11 and like what life is like outside of hawkins and um what other storylines are related to it you know um yeah also as someone who loves x-men of course, I'm going to be real into um, number eight and her powers and the idea that yeah. there's more of them. You know, that was the the best part of watching that whole episode was the knowledge that there are nine other, you know, people around their age that have powers of some sort. Um, and 
will we ever get to meet them? You know, just that potential was so exciting. Yeah, I loved eight. I loved that episode. I saw several comments online of friends just being like, well, episode seven is an hour of my life. I'll never get back. And I was like, you what? Like, it was so fun. It was like a whole a whole different um, season for a second and still a season that I really wanted to watch. Like, if there was a whole show that was 11, like, going around uh, figuring stuff out, like, trying to find all these other kids, like, that would be a fun separate show. Part of me hopes that's not what Stranger Things turns into because I love what's going on in Hawkins and with that group of friends and all of that. But... That detour, that trip, I really, really enjoyed. And I thought it was really necessary for Eleven as a character to go through all that. Um, like, I think giving her the room to breathe and be her own person um, in a way that really just acknowledges that her experience is different from everyone else on this show. Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. It gave her so much agency. Just the idea that, like, she... You know, there was a scene where she's walking down... Um, like a dark, scary alley, and I, I get very tense and like scared for her. Um, and then I had to re- remind myself, I was like, she's the scariest thing in that alley. Like she can, is <laughs> yeah. fully capable of defending herself. Um, and I don't. She is a character that I don't need to be afraid of what's going to happen to her. I need to be afraid of like w- what she's going to do and. She has, this whole episode was about her, like, breaking free of, you know, first she was confined in Hawkins' lab, and then she was confined by Sheriff Hopper, even though it was for good intention, by, with good intentions. Um, but giving her a whole episode to do what she wanted to do, to make her own decisions, to follow um, her own ideas, and meet new people because she wanted to meet them, was so refreshing. Um and then to ultimately decide that, like, that wasn't the path that she wanted to go on was also, I think, really important. Um, mm-hmm. Her learning that there are other people like her in the world and that she's not alone, um, I think it was so important for her character. I think learning that uh, there are other people like her that have a different opinion about how to seek revenge, you know, um, that was yeah. really, I think, important. It was, she, they weren't treating that storyline or her with little kids' gloves, you know? Yeah. And I really appreciated that as well. Um, yeah, because there's this bit in, whenever they introduce the character of Max, just kind of like, I don't know what it was, the, but like whenever she first came on screen, kind of the way she was carrying herself or the way, um, how far open her eyes were or something, I was like, is that Eleven in a wig? Like, is that what they're doing with this season? Um, and I just, throughout the first couple episodes, there was this kind of feeling of like, oh, this is the girl in the group now. And that, I don't know how much they were trying to do that, but I felt like that kind of came through, um, in a way that episode seven really addressed well. It was a way of saying like, no, everyone's experience is different and 11 is in a whole different realm than everyone and needs to be um treated that way and respected that way as a character and like we can root for her in ways that are much bigger and we can like 
have hopes and aspirations for this character that are enormous. And I just, I loved that. And I love seeing her get into that scenario um, and kind of like be obviously impressionable, like have the 80s punk makeover and everything, um, but still retain kind of this um, extra moral excellence in that she could feel totally justified in you know, hunting these people down because they hurt her so much, but choosing to um, kind of, like, not uh, answer violence with violence was, like, really inspiring, and she's super great, and it doesn't mean that there aren't other parts in the show where she's defending herself in violent ways, but just overall, it was, like, it was a really, really cool character exploration that I'm super glad they took the time to do. Yeah. Um, And I don't understand the people who thought it was a rabbit trail. I loved it. Yeah, me either. Um, I will say the whole punk scene was so exciting for me because it was cool. I just love the eighties in general. I love all of eighties style, whether it's eighties prep, eighties nerds, eighties punk, eighties glam, whatever, give it to me. (laughs) I'm, I'm on board. Um, so it was so fun to get out of Hawkins for a second and see like a different set of clothes and people, um, and I loved Eleven's makeover so much. I think mm-hmm. it was like it was beyond badass. I loved, loved, loved it. And I'm, I'm so interested in a season three. What Eleven is going to look like? You know, she's gone through mm-hmm. now like four very specific looks. You know, we had shaved head. Then we have curly overalls. Um, which was not a great look. And then we have amazing <laughs> badass punk look. And then this final, you know, there's the dance. She got kind of dolled up for the dance. And yeah. um, I'm so intrigued. You know, if let's say season three is she finally gets to join the real world as a regular kid. Um, she gets to go to school. She gets to be in public. Um I'm very curious what she decides as is her personal style. You know, we know that she watches TV. We know that she's met these punk kids. What does Eleven gravitate towards when she has her full agency? Um, Right. It's going to be really fun to see. Like, beyond wanting Eggos for lunch every day, what is her interaction with 80s culture? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, There were... That was a great episode, but there were so many things throughout this whole season that were just so rich. I felt like, overall, I felt like it really picked up around episode four. Like, that's when all the gears clicked in and it went. Um, and I just, I there were so many things throughout the season that I loved. Um, I loved how they treated um, the character of Bob and, like, the scene whenever he gives Will advice um, in the car. And it's just, like, really at... You could tell that he was uh, a kid that was picked on, and he's, like, an adult who's confident in himself and all of his geekery and is now, like, trying to help out this other kid. And I also appreciated how it was, like, he was treating it as though it was a real-life problem. Will used the real-life problem advice in a supernatural situation, and the exact like opposite worst thing happened. I felt like that was such an effective, like scary technique because that's part to me, that's like part of what's horrifying about, um, 
nightmares and all these different things are the thought that like, okay, if I reason my way out of it and I try to use logic, that logic isn't going to work and a terrible thing is still going to happen. Yeah. And like watching that happen on screen was so whenever, um, like the, I forget what they call it, but like the giant spider creature is like the shadow or whatever. Yeah. The shadow is like going into him. I was like, I was every, I couldn't move. It was so, so scary. Yeah. Um, and super, super affecting. Um, I also, like, as I saw it starting to happen, was giddy with excitement when um, the power went out at the, uh, like, the... The lab? The lab, yeah. And they were like, we have to turn the breaker back on, and they, like, grab a walkie-talkie. I'm like, is this going to be an exact Jurassic Park proxy? (laughs) And it was, and it was so fun. Like, they kept it kind of fresh, but it was like... Nope, there's these four-legged creatures that are very intelligent walking around and you can't see what's going on and you have to flip a switch to turn lights on so that you can open doors and get out. Like, it was such a cool, like, without being too over-the-top about it, like, Jurassic Park raptor scene touchstone and I I ate it up with a fork and a spoon. Um, but when Bob died in that, I was very, very sad <laughs> Um, because I become so attached to him, I thought they did a great job of introducing him as the super dorky character, but then having you love him. Like, this show doesn't make fun of people who are, um, like, not traditionally cool or whatever it is. Like, they celebrate people in every place, and that's one of the things that I really liked about Bob's character was how much they were able to flesh that out. And I understood what they were doing. I feel... It felt a little obvious that they're pushing for a, uh, a Joyce um, and Hopper. Hopper romance and that Bob had to go for that to happen. But um, I was really I was really sad. <laughs> he was like, he almost made it. He was so close to making it. I mean, it was really crushing. I think I would have been a little bit more sad if his death wasn't so preventable by him just continuing to run. You know, like... He, he paused, and then that's why he was killed. And it's just like, dude, you can't pause. You got to keep moving. And <laughs> if if they – I, I wish – You've not seen this situation. <laughs> I wish they wouldn't have made that choice because if they had just gotten him, like, as he was running, like, it would have been so much more heartbreaking for me because, you know, that happens. And then you're just like, he did his best. But – for him to, like, get through the doors and then pause was just like, dude, you can't do that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and so then when he died, I was like, yeah, that's what happens when you pause. Um, oh. So I, I I really blame the showrunners for making me blame Bob is what I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, it felt, it felt congruent with his character, but it also felt like, you wrote this to make him die. Right. Like, you could have written him not to pause. Like, I get that, characteristically, he only found out all this was happening, like, 24 hours ago, less than 24 hours ago, and he's being so heroic, but he's still, like, very understandably overwhelmed by everything. But yeah, it was just such a crushing, like... I think that was another part of why it was so sad, was I could tell, like, they wrote it on purpose. Like, the plot didn't necessitate him to die. He just, like happened to pause and he's gone yeah Uh. um 
I want to talk really quick about the quiet MVP of this show, and that is my beloved Steve. Um, mm. Steve, I think, is such a star, and or the actor who plays Steve is such a star, and that character was so fun this season. I love, love, love that they have not... That they're making Steve a likable, integral part of this story. Um, mm-hmm. I loved every scene with him in it, and I don't have much more to say about it other than that. Yeah, he was great. I agree. He did a fantastic job. It's a character they could have just written out of the show because he was the oblivious boyfriend. And again, they don't they don't toss people aside in the show. I love that about it. Yeah. Um, you know the show. Go ahead. One scene that. Um, Steve isn't in, but he's sort of related to, that was very uncomfortable for me was the scene with Nancy and Jonathan over at, like, Brett Gelman's house. Okay, Um, yes. Talk about it. Yeah. I watched that scene, and it felt out of place in the show, where Brett Gelman is like, I see what's going on here, you know, and talking about the two of them and, like, their romantic chemistry. Um And then that was followed by, you know, the fact that the two of them have this awkward, you know, meet each other in the middle of the night and then they get together, um, which was then followed by Brett Gelman the next morning kind of making suggestive comments about the two of them. Number one, I think it's weird for this adult to be so invested in the sex life of teenagers. Um, Yeah. I think that was kind of weird and creepy. Number two, it felt out of place in the show. The only credit I can give it was the scene where Nancy and Jonathan are hesitant, but then they finally get together. It did feel very much like a John Hughes kind of moment. And I get that Mm -hmm. part of the show is bringing about all these different 80s movies, um, tropes and um, nostalgic forms of writing. Um, But I will say it just felt out of place. And I... Love all three of those teenagers. I don't even mind a love triangle so much. Um, but I think I am. I mind how blatant this love triangle is. Um, I wish it was a yeah. little bit more subtle and in the background. Yeah, I don't know that I have strong feelings about the love triangleness of it uh, in itself. But that scene really didn't sit well with me either. The one... I loved the John Hughes moment that you're talking about. I also really liked the moment where um, he talked about watering down the truth to like oh, be able to get it out there. Totally. Yeah, I thought that was like a very cool and I mean, with all the political crazy uh, like conspiracy theories that are going around now, I thought that was like oh that's strangely pre- strangely prescient. But um, so that was cool. But overall, the scene of they sold him as a weird, crazy character, and I could see a weird and crazy character acting kind of that way. But then all of the work that that scene does is to say he's an extre- an eccentric person who actually is right. Like, he, like, is an investigative journalist, he is a detective, and he is on the correct track with all the stuff. He just, like, didn't know all these details. So he's not a crackpot, he just, like is grasping at straws of things that have been, like, really uh, hidden from him. Mm-hmm. So that that character, I mean, A, even a creepy character, I don't think would have to be the type of person who's like, hey, teenage kids, you should stay in my guest room. But especially that character, whenever they kind of bring him down to earth and that's still the kind of thing he's saying, 
was so it just so weird and so clearly inappropriate like um and all the suggestive stuff that he was saying was just so I don't know I was really like I was not into that it didn't ruin it didn't ruin the show for me it didn't even ruin that episode for me but while it was happening I was just like this is my least favorite part yeah (laughs) yeah I also wasn't on board with um the weird Billy flirting with Mike's mom scene um I think, again, I think if I saw that scene in a different movie or those two actors in a different setting doing those exact exact lines, I could be really into it. Um, But in the context of everything, I was just like, this is weird. He's a teenager. He goes to the high school. Like, quit with this sexual tension here. Yeah, yeah. It was strange. I think part of it is just because of what we've all been hearing about so much lately. Like there was enough of that going on that probably was fine in eighties. Well, like would have been included in eighties movies that now is just like, ah, that's a little like, I need things to be a little bit more safe right now in this particular area. (laughs) And it also kind of just came out of the blue and wasn't fully necessary. Um, in addition to like being kind of weird and creepy. Yeah, I hear that. I to me it was kind of it played to um it revealed the extra element of his character in that point like oh he's not just an asshole, he's an asshole who knows how to schmooze parents so that he can get away with stuff. Sure. Um yeah. But um but yeah, in general it's just kind of everything about Billy's character I was just not into and at the end of the day it felt like they introduced him to play a stronger role like he and max to have a larger role in upcoming seasons um which i'm not that excited about not to say they can't do something great with it because every character that had a small role last season and a bigger role this season nailed it so i'm sure what the duffer brothers do can be great but i just i mean we've already talked about it billy didn't do a lot yeah for me yeah um yeah any any final thoughts any uh specific plot detail that stuck out to you that you want to talk about? I would just say that, like, I think I've heard rumors that we're going to get four seasons of Stranger Things, which I think is Mm. a good amount. Um, Yeah. I would say my hope for this show is that they finish the story of this, these group of characters and Hawkins, Indiana in those four seasons um, and the upside down and how that relates to Hawkins. Um, but that if they explore any of the other numbered kids from the lab and where they are in the world, um, that gets a different show that we, they, that Netflix just makes a separate show. Um, that's, you know, yes. called, you know, one through 11 or whatever they call it. And that's those characters finding each other, working together. It's its own X-Men thing. Mm -hmm. Um, It just feels like it belongs in a separate show. And I'm okay with those shows interacting with each other, but I feel like if that's going to be a main storyline, I would love that to be a separate show. Yeah. So this is, that's exactly what I was talking about with um, like, I was cool with, I loved eight. I loved that they showed all that, but like, I don't want this show to be, I don't want Stranger Things to be a show that builds up this universe over and over and over without exploring the depths and wrapping up the storyline in Hawkins. Like, 
it was great to see Chicago. It was great to see all that. It was very cool to like think about that larger world. But I completely agree. Like if they want to do a thing that's basically a new version of X Men, that could be super fun and super exciting, and um, is enough for its own separate show. And I think like I want Stranger Things, like you said, to stick with this, even though it's okay if like bits of that come in and I could see an amazing finale scene at one point where like, you know, something really crappy is going down and all kids one through 11 show up to take on this big bad. Like that could be really, really cool, but I don't want to spend all of season three, um, meeting one through, I don't even want like A and B episodes where A is Hawkins and B is meeting other kids. Like I want Stranger Things to stay in this amazing setting with these great grounded characters um, and if they want to do that other thing, that's fun. Just, um, let it, let Stranger Things be its own. Yeah. I will say though, I think what complicates that idea is that it seems that the Matthew Modine character, the Papa character might not be dead. And I could see them because he was introduced in season one of Stranger Things, concluding that storyline within the st- the Stranger Things storyline. And that also seems very relevant to the kids 1 through 11. So uh, because of that character, I-, I can see them tying it all together, you know? Um, who yeah. knows? Yeah, we'll see. I just, we'll see. I mean, whatever. I'm not making the show. They may do a great job with it. But I just, I really hope they don't turn this show into that because I don't think that's the charm of this show. I don't think that's where it's its strongest, mm. but no. Well, I think that about wraps it up yeah. for us talking about Stranger Things. Uh, Stranger Things two, amazing, great, like totally picking up the mantle and running with it in the best way from season one. Um, if you have any thoughts about season two, if you uh, finished it and had wanted to talk about things that we did not talk about, please feel free to reach out to us um, online. You can email us at feelingitpod at gmail.com or you can tweet us for a much faster response at feelingitpod at twitter um and also if you're up for it if you made it this far if you're still listening after we've said that we're done then you must really like us and it would be great if you would uh take the time to take your really liking us to the itunes store to write a review because that just is like the most above and beyond thing we can ask of you. And if you're staying this long, then you're an above and beyond kind of person. So I appreciate you for that. Um, Yeah. Uh, So Sandra, where can we find you online? You can find me on all social platforms at Sandra Amstutz. My last name is spelled A-M-S-T-U-T-Z. You can find me on all social platforms at Lawson West. And you can find our other regular co-host, Lucas, at Lucas and Stuff. Um... Thank y'all for listening. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Goodbye now. Goodbye. Go away. I'll see you soon, okay? That's it. Go home. Yep. Moving along, Padre. Goodbye, old friend. That's it. That's our show for tonight, people.